0: fits in quite well with the harvest theme. As I said earlier, it wasn't particularly designed that way, but God obviously wants us to speak a bit about harvest uh, this morning. But this is just our next passage in Hosea. This is how we work, going through books of the Bible and letting God speak. Now this week I was having a chat uh, around tables with uh, someone on Sunday evening as we were talking about guidance. And we were talking a bit about why people think things happen to them. Why do disasters come on people? Why do uh, lives fall apart. Why is it that some people do well? Well, a popular idea uh, in this conversation that came up with a popular idea in our society is the idea of karma. Now, karma is a Hindu idea of a sort of system in the world that gives you back what you put into it. A sort of law of the universe do bad things and bad things will happen to you. Do good things and good things will happen to you. People have picked up on this idea just by observing the world around them. And it's passed into popular thinking. If you want to hear what societies think, listen to their music. These are a few songs from the last uh, last 20, 30 years. Uh, Probably a little more skewed towards my era. But Justin Timberlake, what goes around comes around. The New Radicals, you get what you give. Get older Lou read. You know that song? Goes there, you've got to read just what you show. Savage garden I believe in karma What you give is what you get returned Or if you want something a bit more modern Taylor Swift uh, in her latest song Says the world moves on another day Another drama drama But not for me, not for me All I think about is karma She's just wanting her revenge On the people who have done harm to her She's wanting the universe to come back at them Or if you're more of an 80s person Of course there's that classic karma, 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 karma Chameleon uh, I was to think it was karma karma, 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 comedian, but it's karma comedian. But is that an idea in the Bible? Well, it is there. If you have a look on the back of your notice sheets, you see there in Job four, uh, one to eight. I've just put one and eight. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, "As I have seen, those who plough iniquity and sow trouble reap the same." Now he was trying to explain Job's suffering. And actually, we're not to take that as being true, because this is just one of Job's friends telling him what he thinks. But even in the Bible, people are picking up this idea of karma. And it's interesting that here, actually, he's completely wrong, isn't he? Job hasn't done something wrong that's resulting in his own action. But in our passage this morning, we see something that's a bit like karma, but it's not quite the same. Instead of karma chameleon, that 80s classic, we have another 80s classic, Chain Reaction. Diana Ross, if anyone's interested. But it's not the idea that those things that I do wrong are met with an equal and opposite reaction. Instead, it's actually that they snowball, that they inflate, that they grow bigger. It's a bit like we understand the butterfly effect. You know, the idea of butterfly uh, spread, uh, flaps its wings somewhere and the consequences carry on and by the time it reaches the other side of the world, it's a hurricane but well, what we see here is that the actions of Israel are going to result in huge consequences. This is what we see in our passage this morning, that Israel has sown the wind, and they've reaped the whirlwind. What they've got back is something like what they sowed, sown, but on a totally different level, a totally different level of magnitude. Their cumulative sowing is bringing disaster upon them. And you might be asking, even you know, at this point, is this a disproportionate response? Well, not at all. It's just a law of nature, isn't it, in a way? The seeds that they have planted have budded and flowered. They've sown the wind and reaped the whirlwind. They've played with fire and they've reaped destruction. So, how are they sowing the wind? Well, the first thing we see is they're in 1 to 6. They're bowing down to bulls. Bowing down to bulls. I'll read it to us again. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. Because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law, to me they cry, "My God, Israel, we know you." Israel has spurned the good; the enemy shall pursue him. They have made kings, but not through me. They have set up princes, but they knew it when I but I knew it not. With their silver and gold they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will you be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. Now to understand what this is about, we need to understand a little bit about the history of Israel. When the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and southern kingdom, split apart, Jeroboam, the king of the northern kingdom, set up two golden calves. You clearly at that point haven't read Exodus, have you? you think, <laughs> golden calves again? Really? But he sets up two golden calves in his land. And the idea is to stop the northern kingdom, the people from there, going down to the southern kingdom to worship. He wants to cut them off from their dependency on the southern kingdom, on uh, Jerusalem, for their uh, their religious life, if you like. The closest I could think of for our situation is a bit like when Harvey Nicks opened in Leeds, you know, it's to stop us all sort of going, have to go down to London to go to Harvey Nicks. Uh, I do want to go there, I don't know. But uh, this idea of, sort of putting something up in the north so they wouldn't need to go to the south. Now, on paper, these bulls were supposed to represent Yahweh, the God of Israel. That's bad enough. Again, obviously, Jeroboam hadn't read Exodus about making carved images. But actually, over time, these cars became associated with the bars, uh, who were often represented as cars by uh, the countries that worshipped them. So he placed one right in the north in Dan, and one right in the south in Bethel. And both these places became snares for Israel. You see, they're saying that they know God, don't they, there in verse 2? We, God, we Israel know you. But yet in practice, they actually think that he's a bull. Not even a living bull. Not even a miraculous bull that was sort of miraculously created. One that a craftsman made. They're chasing after this bull. They're following this bull. And they're committing spiritual adultery. They're two-timing the God of the universe with a chunk of metal. And their love for idols will spell destruction for Israel, as we'll see in a few moments. they're bowing down to bulls. That's one of the things that they're doing. They're sowing the wind by doing it. The second thing they're doing is chasing donkeys. Have a look at verses 7 to 10. For they sow the wind... And they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flour. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey, wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the kings and princes will soon writhe because of the tribute. Israel haven't just chased lovers spiritually by going after these bulls and the Baals. They've also uh, gone after things politically as well. They've chased after other lovers, if you like, other than God. Instead of trusting God with the defence of the nation, they've gone to other nations like Assyria, described here as a wild donkey. Now, I've never seen a wild donkey, but you get the picture, don't you? Unpredictable, unreliable, unsafe. Instead of going to God... They've gone to Assyria. And it's actually going to be Assyria that destroys them. That's the very nation that God will use to crush them. The same place that they want to find apart from God isn't there. Actually, that's the place that's going to destroy them. Why are they doing this? Well, instead of being a light to the nations like they were supposed to be, actually, they just want to fit in with the nations around them, they want to be like the other nations. They want to be among them, if you like. But actually, God's saying, well, that's what's going to happen to you. You want to be among the nations? You want to sort of play with the big boys, if you like? Well, actually, that's what's going to happen. You're going to be among the nations. I'm going to scatter you through the Assyrian Empire. So they're chasing after donkeys, and they should have been chasing after God, trusting in God. That's the second way they're sowing the wind. The third way is that they're multiplying Sin altars. Have a look at 11 to 14. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now will he, re- <clears throat> now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. I don't know if you've noticed as we've gone through Hosea, but Hosea's quite a fan of the pun. Uh, he sort of just plays on words all the way through uh, the book. And verse 11, there is is a pun. It's supposed to be a bit of a joke, in a way. So, you could translate it like this, they built altars for sin offerings, but they have become altars for sinful offerings, if you like. It, the phrase is literally, "their sin uh, altars, but that could mean they're altars to deal with sin, but actually in practice they're becoming altars that are causing them to sin. Some people will give a few, but I'll start again. Sin altars have become sin altars, that's what he's basically saying. So the altars that are there for sin offerings were called sin altars. he's saying, right, these have actually become sin altars. As in, you are sinning with them. So it translates it uh, a little bit strangely in verse 11. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, or literally altars for sin, they have become to him altars for sinning. That's what he's saying, it's a pun. And we've seen, haven't we, already in the book of Hosea, they're quite a fan of, of making a show of their offerings. But God is saying, deep down, you don't even know me. You don't even recognize when I speak. If I were to write you a hundred laws, a thousand laws, you wouldn't even recognize my voice. You'd just ignore them anyway. So they go through the motions, don't they? They offer these sacrifices. Verse 13, they sacrifice the meat, they eat it, they go through the motions. But what they don't realize is that God is not accepting them. They're not really engaging with God. So, God's not really engaging with them. It's a scary thought, isn't it? That they're just going through the motions and they don't realise it. I wonder how much that could be true for our own worship. That actually we, we're not engaging God, with God, so God's not engaging with us. And verse 14 really sums it up For Israel has forgotten his Maker and built palaces. That's really what they care about. They've forgotten God, they've gone after their own agendas. They're sort of feathering their own nests instead of going after God. So that's how they're sowing the wind. And in response, well, they're going to reap the whirlwind. This is mostly chapter nine. but We'll look a bit at chapter eight as well. They're reaping the whirlwind. Not just getting back exactly what they put in, but they're getting it back and then some. And we see that calves, king and country Will be gone. Cars king country will be destroyed. That's really what we see in chapter 8. I won't read the verses to us again. But God is like a vulture there, preying on them, a bird of prey stalking them. He's against them. All the things that they've worked for will be destroyed. The calves that it mentions, it tells us in verse 6, will be destroyed, will be shattered to pieces. They won't destroy their idols, so God's going to do it for them. Their king will writhe under the tribute. Ultimately, the king will be taken away. What use will their palaces be then? And the country itself will end. God will put them back where he got them from. He saved them out of slavery, and now to slavery they will return. And that's the theme that's picked up in the next chapter. You see the three things get reversed. The first thing is reversing history. I'll read you one to six. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour out drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourners' bread to them. All of them who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of your appointed festival, on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from—sorry, uh, behold, they are going away from destruction. But Egypt shall gather, gather them, Memphis shall bury them, Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver, Thorns shall be in their tents. Their raucous festivals are going to stop because God is going to carry them away from their home. Their free-flowing wine that they've enjoyed will stop and instead they'll eat and drink in Egypt, in Assyria. God will undo history and he's going to figuratively send them back to Egypt. Say figuratively because in actual history they go to Assyria as it hinted out in the passage. They will be poor. They will be hungry. They won't have the things to have their fake feasts anymore. All the things they've chased after will turn to dust and be buried under thorns and briars. It's as though the land of milk and honey is going to become the place of thorns and nettles. History will be reversed as the New Eden, if you like, that existed in Canaan, will become an untamed wasteland. God's going to hit the rewind button on their life together and take them back through history. So he reverses history. He's also reversing religion. Have a look at verses 7 to 9. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of spirit is mad. Because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim. With my God. Yet a foul stare is on all his ways. And hatred in the house of his God. They have become deeply corrupt sorry, they have deeply corrupted themselves, as in the day of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity, he will punish their sins. These verses are some of the most difficult to understand in Hosea. Because we've got the question, well, who is it that's speaking? Uh, we're not always given speech marks, and we're not given speech marks in Hebrew, so we don't know who's saying what, if you like. It could be that he's reporting something they're saying, or it could be something he's saying. So it could be Hosea and God denouncing the other prophets. That's one option. Or it could be the people denouncing Hosea, saying he's a mad prophet. I think it's better to think of it the first way—that Hosea and God are denouncing the other prophets. The prophets who should have brought sense to the nation are now bringing stupidity, and it happens throughout Israel's history. We find that as the prophets of God stand up, we get other prophets who stand up and say the opposite, speaking their own opinion and wrapping it up as a word from God. The prophets, you see, were supposed to be watchmen of Israel. They're supposed to guard them from error and sin. Yet their ways now are like traps. The fowler's snare is on them. They're going to catch them, if you like, rather than help them. And we're told it's like in the days of Gibeah. Now, there are two big things happening in Gibeah in the Bible. The first happens in Judges, and is a reference to the rape and murder of a Levites concubine. The second thing that happens in Gibeah is that uh, Saul, the king of Israel, comes from Gibeah. He's from that place. And I think it's more likely to be a reference to this, that actually this is the hometown of Saul. That's when the people appointed for themselves a king, to be like the nations around them, if you remember. And it sounds very similar to the predicament that they've got here. And if you remember then, God gave the prophet Samuel to anoint Saul for the people. But it wasn't for their good. It was actually to judge them. God appointed a bad king, if you like, so that they'd see just how bad it could be. So you think here that the prophets were here to bless, but instead actually they're there to curse. So the religion is sort of reversed, it's flipped over for them. Thirdly, we get reversing fruitfulness. Have a look at verses 10. Seventeen. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruits on the fig tree in its season, in first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal-peor and consecrated themselves to the things of shame, and became detestable like the things they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they were to bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them! When I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, is like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry grass. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them, because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Now all the way through the book of Hosea, we get Ephraim, sort of used as a synonym, as another word for Israel. That's because Ephraim was the largest tribe in the northern kingdom. It's a bit like the way sometimes Americans and others uh, refer to the United Kingdom as England. You know, just because it's the biggest bit. They get a bit muddled up. <clears throat> or you might refer to Africa as Nambia. Uh, if, you, <laughs> if you're so aware um, But uh, Ephraim, the tribe, all the tribes' names meant something. Ephraim meant double fruitfulness. So fruitfulness was like its middle name, if you like. So their glory was their relentless fruitfulness. Babies by the soil, just growing and growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. Ephraim says, doesn't it, that it was like a luxurious vine. You get this picture of a sort of growing, budding thing. But because of their idolatry, which started very early on, you get a mention of that here. I put a verse on the back of your sheets, but uh, just to show you where it comes from. But because they've done this, because they've gone to idols, God is going to reverse their fruitfulness. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even the children who are born will die. They will be slaughtered. Sounds horrific, doesn't it? Sounds pretty awful. But so evil have they become that God is saying it's better if there were fewer of them. If he reigned in their fruitfulness. Because look at what happens when they grow and increase. Have a look at 10, verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. It's saying the more that they grow, the more that they sin, The more that they're idolatrous. The richer that they get, the more that they spend it on their idols. If you remember Gomer in the early chapters, taking the good things that Hosea had given to her and spending it on her lovers. So if Ephraim is a luxurious vine, then God is going to prune them right back. He'll reverse their fruitfulness. And then much of chapter 10 goes on to repeat of what we've seen before. Carvings, kings, and country, gone. Their idolatrous pillars will be destroyed. See that in verse two, their heart is false. None of must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. Their golden calf is going to get carried off. Their great king will be snapped like a twig and thrown off, and their altars will be overrun with thorns and thistles. The only time you get that phrase mentioned is that again back in Genesis, looking at what became of the world after the fall. It's so bad that they're going to call the mountains to fall on them. See that there? i can't see the verse now. Eight. Verse 8, thank you. The high places of Avon, that's beth Aven, another name for Bethel. The sin of Israel shall be destroyed, thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars. And they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and the hills, fall on us. The New Testament picks up that imagery as a picture of the end of the world. People calling the mountains to fall on them. This will be cataclysmic to them. You know, people say, "That's not that important. It's not the end of the world." Well, in one sense, for them, it is—a picture of the end, the judgment that God will bring at the end of the world. Their double fruitfulness has become double iniquity. That's what we see there in verse ten. They are bound up for their double iniquity. The more they grow, the more they sin. They have plowed iniquity, reaped injustice, and eaten its fruit of lies. Their idolatry and political maneuverings will result in their destruction. Just as the Assyrian king Shalmaneser brought destruction to a place called Beth in Assyria, so now Assyria will come against Beth El, the idolatrous shrine symbolizing the idolatrous nation. So the kingdom and the king will be cut off. They've sown the wind and they've reaped the whirlwind. Well, that seems pretty comprehensive, doesn't it? It seems pretty awful. But is there any hope? That's the question that we're sort of left with after reading all that. Well, I think there is. Have a look at chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to fresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plough, Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Just as our sin reaps the whirlwind, so turning to God reaps something as well. There's a good chain reaction, if you like. If we sow righteousness, we will reap steadfast love. And God will rain down righteousness on us. But that's what Israel refused to do. They refuse to sow righteousness. They refuse to seek the Lord. But God is promising them something amazing, isn't he? Sowing righteousness that leads to steadfast love, that leads to righteousness falling on them like rain. A chain reaction that just keeps giving. So what are we saying then? What do we need to do to start off this chain reaction? Is it just that Israel needs to be good and then good things will happen? Well, we've already said, isn't it, that's what most people think, isn't it? Some people think that's what being a Christian is, just trying to do good things. Uh, I saw an article in The Guardian uh, last night, just before I went to sleep, and it was saying, oh, well, really, you know, we should all just get along, because all religions just say, just try your hardest, and, you know, God will be pleased with you. But it's not quite that simple, is it? And actually, that idea syncs with that word we started with, doesn't it, karma. This is not just do good things and do good things will be done to you. It gives us two reasons. Number one, part of what they were to do was to break up their fallow ground. What does that mean? Well, in human terms, it literally is, you know, get yeah. at it with a hoe or, you know, get on uh, with a calf to break up the land. But that doesn't really get us any closer to what it's actually meaning, does it? On the back of your notice sheets, you'll see that Jeremiah picks this up a generation later and explains it for us. Jeremiah 4, verses 3 and 4. For this says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my wrath go forth like fire, and burn with none to quench it. Because of the evil of your deeds. So if we see there. Breaking up the fallow ground. It's sort of paralleled with circumcising our hearts. It's something that goes on inside of us. That image there of circumcision. Is like peeling back sin. Cutting out sin from your life. It's not just about doing good things. It's about heart change. It's about something happening in here. And that's something done by God. And not by men. And this fits with the righteousness that they're to sow, doesn't it? Because I expected it to say, they'll sow righteousness, reap steadfast love, and blessings will pour down on them like rain. But it doesn't. Actually, it goes back to righteousness, doesn't it? Righteousness falls down on them like rain. The righteousness that they have is a gift from God, if you like. So this isn't works, it's grace. Because actually, even the righteousness they have must come from God. It's rained down from him before they can sow it. So we're not talking about just works here, we're talking about grace. God pulls out his righteousness from above. The second reason that it's not just karma is that in the New Testament, the harshest letter that Paul wrote, Galatians, was written to people being tempted back into this works mentality, you know, do something good, something good will happen to you. And in Galatians six, this is what he wrote against on the back of your notice sheets Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. It's totally consistent within grace. That in one sense we reap what we sow. Otherwise the book of Galatians would make no sense. Because that's what Paul is arguing against. But what he's saying is that God is not mocked. If we're faking, God knows. We saw that last week, didn't we? So we cannot carry on sowing injustice and expect steadfast love. We can't carry on sowing to the flesh And expect eternal life. God is not a doormat. We reap what we sow. How can we say that within grace? Well the same grace that saves us, sanctifies us, makes us holy. If we're carrying on as before, then actually we're only deceiving ourselves. We're not deceiving God, he sees it. So if God's righteousness has been poured on us like rain, then that righteousness will seep out. And if it doesn't, then we're clearly not sowing righteousness. We're not involved in that chain reaction. And that's true in the extremes, isn't it? So if we've got no sanctification in our life, if we're not growing in holiness, then it's very presumptuous to say that we're saved. No sanctification, no salvation. Because they both come from the same grace. But it's also true in smaller cases. If we sow to the flesh in our Christian lives, we may still reap disaster. Not eternally, but temporally. Sometimes God allows the consequences of our actions to happen, to discipline us. Now God's goal in that is always to bring us back, to make us realise the folly of doing that, to make us see that we cannot live that way. But if you're living a life of consistent sin and life is hard, things are going badly then it's a reminder that you need to repent. I should also say if you're living a life of consistent sin and life is easy, you also need to repent. But just God sometimes uses those things to remind us. He sometimes lets us reap what we sow to remind us to turn to Him. So is there hope? Well, there is hope. But karma offers no no hope. Karma offers no mercy. But God offers us mercy in this passage, doesn't he? If we will follow our ground. If we will break ourselves before him. If we will seek him and stop chasing after other things. And the amazing thing from the Bible is that we see that God can even work in our hearts to change them. So that we will seek him. So that we will turn from idols and worthless things and live for him. So let's pray that God would do that work in our hearts this morning and this week, turning us from idols to the living God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are not mocked. Father, thank you that you know all things. And Father, thank you that even sometimes you let us bear the consequences of our actions in this life. Father, to see the folly of sowing to the sinful nature. So, Father, we pray that you'd help us not to sow injustice, Father, not to sow to please ourselves, but to sow to the Spirit, Father, to sow to please you. Father, help us to live lives that reflect your character. and Father, show your love to one another. Help us, Father, as we all struggle with sin. Father, as we all sow to the wind sometime. Help us to pull one another back, and to help one another, uh, Father, that you might get the glory, and that we might reap that righteousness, that steadfast love, Father, that you offer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.